Good evening. It is Thanksgiving weekend, and um, I don't know about you, but we had a great Thanksgiving. Um, as Ryan mentioned, I am referred to sometimes as Miss Jessica's husband or the guy who's fixing the printers again. And, uh, and that's because my name's weird. It's Dawson Kratzer. My parents are both here tonight. I can thank them for that. They decided to uh, make life difficult. I could be a boy named Sue, so I guess it's not that bad. Uh, but with a weird name comes other weird things. Uh, my wife is very patient. Um, Thanksgiving, we do a traditional Thanksgiving lunch. And then at dinner, we eat what I am most thankful for, which is her buffalo chicken dip and pizza. And that is our Thanksgiving supper. And uh, I think that's just the best way to go. If you haven't had her buffalo chicken dip, you would know why, once you have it, that that's what I want. And as we're being thankful and everything, um, Dr. Cook asked me to preach tonight. He wanted me to preach on something on the topic of thankfulness. And so we're going to turn our attention to some guys who are, were very thankful, one who was most thankful. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 17. As you're turning there, sometimes we, we turn to passages that are overwhelmingly familiar and the result is we gloss over some of the details that in that moment, for the people who were there, it meant worlds. It completely redirected their thoughts, their perspectives, their understanding of Jesus. And so tonight I want to slow down as we go through those and really capture what the disciples were seeing, what the lepers were seeing, and what we can learn about Jesus so that we can be better followers of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you get to John, it's too far. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Let's start with verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. You'll remember a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Cook gave us an overview of the book of Luke. He's preaching through the book of Luke. I did not realize at this time, at the time I decided to preach on this passage, that he was going to be there, which means that in like six months, he's going to preach this much better than I do tonight. But if you remember from that overview that he gave us, in Luke 9.51, it's basically this turning point in the book of Luke. Jesus has been doing his ministry in Galilee, and then it has in Luke 9.51 that Jesus sets his eyes, sets his direction toward Jerusalem. His ministry is about to culminate. Everything shifts in the book of Luke, and he's headed toward Jerusalem. It says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And we see here that he's passing between Samaria and Galilee. If you're familiar, or maybe you want to turn to one of the maps in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that there's a road that basically goes from Nazareth right down to Jerusalem. And that's where he's headed. And if you're looking at that map, you'll see that on one side of that, there's kind of the area known as Samaria and the other side is known as Galilee. And so he's passing between them, headed toward Jerusalem. And with those two areas that he's going in between, there is a lot of loaded backstory. You think about Galilee, that is more of the Roman. They've been Hellenized. They're not really all the way Jewish, the ways the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem would really want to, really want to lock in and be the right kind of Jew. 
if you were from that area, there's strong tensions that result. And even worse so as you move through Samaria. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But Samaria, there's that, there's that almost latent racism that flows through every Jewish person's mind when they hear Samaritan. So that's where he's passing between. He's, he's moving from his home base of Galilee for over two years of ministry, and he's headed to his final purpose, his final destination. We look in verse 12, it says, as he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. 10 leprous men. These men, these, these are pandemic professionals. If they're around, they've already done it. They've had their faces covered for years. They've stood at social distancing, not a problem for them. There weren't even lines that they were allowed to stand in. So they were more than prepared for social distancing. But more than that, what I want to look at here is what is leprosy and what is our understanding of leprosy? Because it can range. It could be just various skin diseases. And sometimes if you're looking in the column on the side of your Bible, if you have a reference Bible, it will say various skin diseases. And in other parts, it's more, it's more clear than that. The way that we should understand what these men had is that it's probably the modern rendering of what's called Hansen's disease. And what Hansen's disease is, is it's basically a rotting of your skin that is also passed through, um, I guess, vapors or through breathing. And that's why they had to both cover their face and keep distance from people. Numbers 5-2 is very clear about this, that they have to keep their distance. They have to keep their face covered. Um, you can almost think of the bacteria from this type of leprosy as tuberculosis. It's very similar in its, in its biology to tuberculosis. So clearly, Jesus keeps his distance from these men. These men know the rules themselves. They have to keep distance from them. And if you think of the psychological effects of what's going on with these men, this is their last-ditch effort. This is their last chance. They're thinking to themselves, here's this guy we've heard about. We need, to, we need to try something here. Loneliness has set into their lives. They're only around, allowed to be around each other. They've not seen their families up close. They haven't hugged each other. They haven't handshaked. They, haven't, they weren't even allowed to do the weird elbow thing that we were doing 12 months ago. None of that was on the table. More than that, they lived in extreme poverty as outcasts. There was no job that they could do. There was nothing that they could do to earn money. They were reliant on alms and people giving to them. Worse than that, if you think about John chapter 9 and the man who was born blind, all right, what's the, the first response of the disciples? Who, who, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Well, in the same way, people thought that very commonly. And sometimes even in our own hearts, when we see somebody who, who is outcast and who is sick or who wants to be, or somebody who's sick and unable to be around others, sometimes the first thing we go to is, oh, they must have sinned. And that's exactly, we see that in John 9. So people probably thought that. Many would believe that their sin or their family's sin is what caused them to have this leprosy. And they were socially outcast. They deserved this almost. That's weighty. The effects on these men for years, being outcast, being on their own. We're not even two years in, into the pandemic and we, we can just 
we, we can feel it a little bit. They could feel it much deeper than we can. So we see in verse 13 that they go for it. And they raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They want it. They want it so bad. Whatever mercy means, they want it. Make the pain go away. Make the, make the effects go away. Make it so that we can just be around people. What, just some kind of mercy on us. It's very interesting that they use the term master. Master is exclusive to Luke. And in every occurrence in the book of Luke leading up to this, it's always used by disciples. So this is the first non-disciple use of the word master. If you think back through the book of Luke for a moment, uh, Peter uses it in Luke 5 when they're fishing and Jesus tells them to fish on the other side. And he's like, master, we've been up all night. You know, weepy Peter. He always is like that. Then again, in Luke chapter eight, um, the storm is raging. Uh, and, and again, the disciples, master, we're going to die. We're going to die. Jesus is there. He calms the storm. We see it again with the woman who, um, who was hemorrhaging and in Luke 8, and uh, she's touched him. Jesus is like, who touched me? And of course, it's Peter again. He's like, master, there's all kinds of people around. How would we ever know who touched you? And we see it again right after in uh, Luke 9, one chapter later, Peter at the transfiguration. All right, Peter's trying to fill the awkward silence a little bit. And uh, he goes, master, it's good that this is happening. Let's build tents. Um, of course, Peter. Then again, in Luke 9, John at the second prediction of uh, Jesus uh, saying that he would have to die, uh, John fills it in and kind of changes the topic. Maybe he's uncomfortable. And then we see it here. Why would these guys call Jesus master if only disciples had called Jesus master before that? How did people in isolation hear about Jesus? How did people without Facebook, Meta, whatever you call it, Instagram, TikTok, Reels, whatever your social media of choice is, how did they hear about it? The same way our grandparents heard about things. The prayer chain went through the telephone system, guys. It's only 25 years ago that my grandparents had that right there on their fridge, right next to their phone. And so word spreads fast. I mean, you can think about it. In the early parts of, of the Gospels, you see crowds so much so that Jesus has to push off in a boat at one point to just get away from them. They knew about Jesus, the words out there. They heard about him and they heard what he was doing. If they heard about him, it's very likely they knew what he was doing. They knew what he was able to do. So to have mercy on us is basically heal us like you healed the other people. That's what we want. They didn't have Zoom church. They weren't able to hear about it that way. But you see the crowds in Luke 8, the crowds again in Luke 14. What they wanted was to have mercy and mercy for them as they understood at the time was being healed. We will see that that changes. Let's look at verse 14. When he saw them, so when Jesus saw them, Notice that word saw. We'll see that again in the next verse. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. We have to think about it. Those first three verses, very important. Jesus was running the most important errand of his life. He was running the most important errand in history. He was headed to the cross. And yet he had time to see them. These weren't the first people that said, have mercy on us. 
These weren't the first people to reach out and try to get his attention. He could have easily ignored them. How often do we ignore internal moments around us? He said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. What? Like this has got to be the most confusing thing to read. Because you're like, why would you? You could heal them right then and there. You've done it before. Why would he say, go and show yourselves to the priests? Well, for them, this made total sense. Because in their mind, what they're expecting is for Jesus to heal them in the sense that they are no longer contagious. Remember, if this is something that's an aerosol, is how it mainly passes, or through their rotting flesh, then if they are cleared of it being contagious, they are now allowed to go back to their families, return to normal life. And so when they hear this, they're thinking, oh my gosh, we're no longer contagious. We just have to go and prove it with the priests. There are very clear laws in Leviticus 13. The priests have to examine them. And then they declare the spread is over and that the infection is ended. And then they can return to regular life. They can re-enter society. Their 10-day quarantine is over. And then it says, and as they were going, they were cleansed. As they were going, they were cleansed. So they're on the way. Why were they cleansed? Was it just their contagious aspects that were cleansed? No, clearly not. Because it says in verse 15, now one of them, when he had saw that he was healed. So not only were they no longer contagious, the clear marks of leprosy were gone. There was no more rotting. There was no more impending doom. There was no expected timetable on their death. Take a moment to consider what you would do first if you were in their shoes. Where's the first place you go? Who's the first person you see? If you think back to the last 18, 20 months now, if you had to quarantine, what was the first thing that you went back to do that was normal? Or maybe that first place, the first restaurant you got to go and sit down and eat at, like normal again. What were these 10 guys going to do? Verse 15. Now one of them, when he had saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. One of them, 10% success rate. This is the savior of the world. 10% success rate. This should encourage us when we are sharing the gospel with people. 10% is great. That's what Jesus is capable of. I mean, so if you're getting 9% success rate, that's fantastic. 10% success rate, one in 10. And notice what the next line says. It says, when he saw, Jesus sees them. He sees that he's been healed. The healing was not merely ritual. It wasn't just the ceremonial requirement that was, that was needed by the law in order to clear them to return to society. It was evident physically and he turned back. Notice that pause. When he had been healed, turned back. This is a great metaphor. This is a great picture of repentance. You can literally see the U-turn this man makes on the road. And it says he was glorifying God with a loud voice. Think about Psalm 98. 
glorifying God with a loud voice or more close in time to this event. We heard Dr. Cook preach about it last week. Luke chapter one, verse 42. When Elizabeth sees Mary, what does she do? She doesn't whisper it quietly. She doesn't just exclaim. She says with a loud voice, same words right here, loud voice. When people meet Jesus, it's with a loud voice. This would have alarmed people. This would be weird. I mean, imagine somebody comes in, right, in here right now with a loud voice or is in the grocery store with a loud voice. People having loud voices is weird. This guy is like all out, don't care. Doesn't matter to me. It's, no, it's, it's completely understandable that he would be like this. But what does he do? He's glorifying God with a loud voice. And in verse 16, it says, And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet. This, first of all, first and foremost, posture of worship. He falls at Jesus' feet. But ancient feet were filthy. They were gross. And think about it. He is on a road from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It was not paved. It likely was not gravel. It was dust. It was dirt. It was filthy. And he had on sandals. I know that I'm wearing shoes tonight, but if Jesus were here and Jesus were preaching, he'd have on sandals. And his feet would be filthy. There were no, there were no red wing work boots. There were no hunter boots that he could wear on that journey. His feet were disgusting. And where does this man find himself? At the feet of Jesus. More than that, this is the first close human interaction the leper has. This is weird. The, if you think about it, most people would go and hug their wife. They would kiss their children. He falls at dirty feet of the Messiah. He understood who he was glorifying. He was glorifying God. He understood, just like the woman back in Luke chapter 7, that he had a massive debt which was now forgiven. And he finds himself at the feet of Jesus, just like that woman found herself at the feet of Jesus. Now, up until, until this point of the story, if they weren't there, they would be tracking right along. Jewish readers would be, this is great. This is a good story. I like hearing this about Jesus. This is exactly the kind of work Jesus should be doing. And then the second half of this verse hits. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus, why? why? There, there were 10 good Jews there. Why couldn't you change the heart of one of the Jewish guys to come back instead of one of the Samaritans? What's wrong with you? Absolutely nothing. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus isn't the only person there. The disciples were there. At least 12. But if you think back just a couple of chapters in Luke 10, he had sent out the 72. So perhaps there were more followers. Maybe even more than 72. We don't know. It doesn't say. But there were other people around seeing what Jesus did. And they knew out of the 10 men in the lineup right there, there were physical features that set apart the Samaritan and they knew which one he was and they could tell without it being said. He was a Samaritan. Samaritans were hated. They were considered less than humans. They were considered less than dogs, basically, because they were the remnants of the 10 northern tribes. And if you think back seven centuries before this, almost seven and a half centuries at this point, 
The Assyrians had come in as the punishment of God to punish the 10 northern tribes. And one of the ways that the Assyrians came in is they would basically overwrite your culture by marrying off your daughters and sons to Assyrians and assimilating their culture in. And it got to the point where the Samaritans, they worshiped at a different place, Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. They, they had a different perspective on the laws and the prophets, particularly any of the books past the first five books of the Old Testament. They looked different. They acted different. You can even think back to the woman at the well in John chapter four. This is a stinging reality, but it is a reminder of the purpose of Jesus in Luke chapter 19. What does it say in verse 10? For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. No designations about what their race was. No designations about their poverty level. No designations about any other physical attribute of people except their lostness. For Jewish observers, it stings because this Samaritan got it and the others didn't. They should have been able to understand. For the followers of Jesus, though, for those who were right there hanging out with him, close to him, the disciple that Jesus loved even, he is broadening the view of who is included in the group known as the lost. Who do we need to broaden our view to include in that group? Was this guy marginalized? Check. Was he unwanted? Yep. Was he unhealthy? Absolutely. But you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't assume the eternity of others. Don't assume the eternity of people who are, are around you. They might not look like they'd ever become a Christian. But that might be the exact person that Jesus wants to save. And you want to know how I know he wants to save them? Because he came to seek and to save those who are lost. So we are here to seek others with the message of his salvation. We move on to verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Jesus is very cheeky. Jesus is a, a master of words. I love the cheekiness and the sarcasm that he uses at times. He's pointing out the blatantly obvious moment that is occurring right here. Where are they? What's going on? He does this to clarify that all were healed the same. Because they weren't there, they couldn't see the other nine. So Jesus is making it clear to the, his followers and everybody else, all 10 were healed just the same. We're making that very clear. So what did the other nine do? Like I mentioned already, they probably did good things. They probably ran home to family. They went and bought new clothes instead of their tattered cloths. They rejoiced with friends. They probably bought something from a street vendor and ate it with the money that they had. These aren't bad necessarily, but they lacked something. What did these guys lack? Where are they? Verse 18, Jesus continues, Was no one found? Who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? There's two big things happening here. Can't miss them. You just absolutely can't miss what's happening in this statement that Jesus makes right here. The first, Jesus accepts praise as God. It's very different than the rest of what we see in earlier parts, particularly in Mark, of Jesus. He's accepting the praise. This guy is glorifying God, falls at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't tell him, no, stop, that's blasphemy. He accepts it. 
he is showing that he has equality with the Father. This is a transition from his early ministry. His time has come. He's headed to Jerusalem. It's go time. Second, the first to experience Jesus as God and understand it from this group of 10 is the foreigner. You can feel the weight of Jewish racism, the nationalism, all of that in this statement that Jesus makes. Except this foreigner, except this non-Jew. What I think is really neat is if you connect the dots back in the book of Luke and you go all the way back to Luke chapter 4. You go right back where Jesus had come from. Think about it. He just came from the Nazareth area. In Luke chapter 4, he's preaching in Nazareth, in his hometown. And in verses 24 through 27, he had just left Galilee. Let's turn there for just a moment. Luke chapter 4. Jesus says, truly I say to you, no prophet, verse 24, No prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you the truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There is a social drop with each one of those statements about who Elijah went to. And, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The symmetry here in the book of Luke is beautiful. It is only the lepers who are not even from Israel who get healed and who praise God. He had just left Galilee, ironically, where he made those statements. And in Luke 4, they were filled with hate. And in Luke chapter 17, we see one who is filled with joy. Verse 19, then he said to him, Jesus says to the man, rise and go, your faith has made you well. You could think back to John chapter 5. He says this to the paralytic, take up your mat and go, rise and go, do what you want. Your faith has made you well. Notice his thankfulness is not what saved him. It was his faith. He saw Jesus for who he truly was. When he saw that he was healed, he saw the Messiah. He got it. Just like the woman in Luke 7. Just like the woman in Mark 5. Their faith healed them physically. But more important, they were healed spiritually. Because they saw Jesus and they understood him as Messiah. They understood him as God. We've all been there. We've seen him. We know him. So what do we do with this? As we read through and we see this account of this one guy and we see ourselves so much in the seat of this one leper and we're like, yes, we want to have that kind of faith. What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? As we observe Jesus's ministry, we should be asking ourselves, how are we to be changed? The very first one, three points of application for tonight. Jesus stopped for people even while running the most important errand of all time. We can't 
blast past people and be so task-oriented and focus on our list and checking those things off and moving to the next thing. People matter. Young mothers, you've probably been asked 25 questions in the van already, just like we were on the way here. You might be in the grocery store getting picked on or waiting in the, the click list pickup with just a little mouth going constantly in the back seat. Stop for people. In the workplace, you might have that one coworker that you just avoid. You just avoid and it's just all the time. It's just going to take up so much of your time. And they are, they are somebody who is just wanting a relationship so bad and you just can't. You can't give time to them today. You have other things you've got to get done. Find moments in your busy life for eternal conversations. If you're like, I don't, I don't know how to have an eternal conversation. Like told me before I got up here tonight, he said, you better say something about take the step. Take the step is next Sunday morning. You can sign up for it right now, naobc.org. I don't know the stuff after the slash. If you use Google, you'll find it. If you don't know how to have eternal conversations, come be part of that class. I teach it with Ethan Hinkson and Blake will be there as well. We talk about simple ways to turn everyday conversations into eternal conversations. Find moments in busy life. Not when life isn't busy. Not when it's not as busy. In the midst of busy life for eternal conversations. Second, praising God should not be relegated to worship services. If this is the only time you praise God... It's not enough and it's not healthy. That's anemic. We often rush to celebrate with family and friends. We send a, a text to the group chat about good news. We jump on social media. But how often do we truly praise God? How often do we look foolish praising God? We need to thank him often, not just Thanksgiving. It's not enough. We need to be humbled by his glory. Sometimes it just doesn't hit us the same as it used to. I wonder if we were always as humbled and thankful as young Christians, the impact that would have on us talking about him more often. You were once that Samaritan. Never lose that awe of Jesus. And then how do we have more faith? How do we have more faith? Like somebody tells you, have more faith. And I'm like, okay, I want to have more faith. But how do you do that? You know, you're, you're kind of like, uh, like the guy who's like, I believe, help my unbelief. How do I have more faith? Faith is believing that which we cannot see. It's believing despite our circumstances. When the physical and tangible world around you scream and just all of your attention is focused on that. Maybe that's health problems. You might not have leprosy. You might have something just as difficult that's going wrong with you physically, mentally, that's taking all of your attention. It might be your finances. It could be broken relationships. Whatever is going on around you, be sure that you see Jesus. Not just notice him, see him and call out to him. Simple ways to have more faith. Pray for his spirit to be present 
and apparent in your life that you might see him working. Pray for his word that you're reading to be applicable for you to understand it and apply it to your life so that you can be more like Jesus. And pray for reminders that help you believe. Pray for those reminders. I hope tonight that we've been able to look a little bit deeper into God's word and this incident that happened with Jesus. This isn't a parable. This is a real story. It actually happened. And it actually happened while Jesus was extremely busy and ready to do the most important thing he did for us. And yet he still took the time to do it. Never lose the awe. Never lose that awe and have more faith. Let's pray. Father, we are so glad that you are in the healing and saving business. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you came as we celebrate the beginning of Advent. But even more than that, we are in the middle of a second Advent and we are looking forward so much to when you return. And until you return again, Help us not to be like those who were upset that it was a Samaritan that was healed, but let us be excited just as you were that people are being saved. Help us to be people who seek and save and take the message of salvation to the lost just as your son did for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.